Well, hello, and welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I am co-hosting, filling in for Dave Robson. It's a pleasure to be with you again. (laughs) (laughs) He is on vacation. He'll be back uh, end of this week, so he'll be back at the saddle or on the saddle or at the helm in the driver's seat. Guiding the airplane. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Next Tuesday. So, uh, yes, for now you get uh, this bumbling guy. And uh, so it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Adrian. This is Reason for Hope, A Reason for Hope. This is a Bible answer program where we take questions from people uh, watching live our live stream, which we're live streaming to multiple platforms. And if you have a question about the Bible, about an application of a specific, uh, specific passage to your life, or perhaps just something that uh, may cause a little confusion you want some clarity on. Uh, even things like, does God exist? Or uh, is Christianity's creationism compatible with the theory of evolution? That's just a couple examples of the many questions that we get on this program, and we would love for you to join us. And there are multiple ways to do so. You can join us on Facebook, of course, and uh, just go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson. Join the live stream when we go live. and simply leave your question as a comment and we will monitor that throughout the program and get to your questions. Uh, Of course you'll have to watch uh, for us live and we do live stream this program, this Bible Answer program, Monday through Friday 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We are in the Southwest United States in Tucson, Arizona, live streaming from Calvary Christian Fellowship and so if you wouldn't mind uh, taking our live stream on Facebook and sharing it, maybe putting it on your own news feed, uh, maybe even give us a like, uh, we'd really appreciate it. You can also catch us on YouTube. If you go to youtube.com uh, forward slash a reason for hope 546, that's at a reason for hope 546, uh, would be great and we'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe and hit that notification bell so that we can grow our audience. Our desire here is to make an impact in people's lives with truth and that's really what it all amounts to so please do that if you have a chance we're also archiving our program on rumble so if you missed an episode and don't want to go hunting around on facebook or youtube just go to rumble and search for a reason for hope and if you do so please follow us we'd like to grow our audience there as well you can also if you prefer not to go to a social media platform and just want to watch the live stream and leave questions you can go to our website calvarychristianfellowship.com hit the watch live tab and you can watch the live stream there's a little text box where you can leave questions and make even a little nifty button to leave a prayer request so we would encourage you to do that if you'd prefer we also have an app a church app you can download this app by searching in the Apple or Google Play Store search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and you can download the app. You can listen to this program, listen to our services. We, we live stream all of our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can follow along in a nifty little digital Bible that's right there in the app. You can leave notes, highlights. You can start chat groups, look at our current events, and even go into our archives of messages that we've taught in the past. We are a church that teaches verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter. So if you want to say go through a particular book of the Bible, you can do so right there on the app and uh, follow along and do your own Bible study of a verse by verse study of a particular book of the Bible. So we'd encourage you to do that if you so choose. Now for those of you who would like to leave a question a little more discreetly, you can do so by simply emailing us 
at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That is questionsforhope, all spelled out, no numbers, all letters, at gmail.com for those of you listening in on the radio. And lastly, we'd encourage you and invite you to follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter. You can do so by going to twitter.com and uh, searching for at uh, ScottR4H. And has a, he has a very informative and sometimes entertaining Twitter feed, so I'd encourage you to do that as well. In studio with me today is our assistant pastor, Bo Olette, or Oyete. <laughs> <laughs> or Omelette? No, uh, I'm sure you've heard all of them. I've heard all of them, yep, but Wallette. Wallette. Wallette, yep, nice. but nice to be here, man. Yeah, it's good to have you. Yeah. I love doing the show with you, so it's Thanks. really awesome. And of course, Pastor Sean Richards is with us here today as well. Yes, and he's ready to go. Look at it, look at all of his tabs on his Bible. I mean, that's how ready to go <laughs> this guy is. Indeed, right? When it's you when you see outreach. someone with the tab with a Bible like that, <laughs> <laughs> you know you're in for it. Now, that's for sure. How do you find what you're looking for when there's as many tabs as there are pages? <laughs> Knowing what the colors mean based on topic. That's right. Mm. Like I said, if I saw a guy like that, I'd be like, oh, uh oh, I'm in for it. Here we go. Better know your stuff before you start challenging uh, whatever you're going to challenge. Yep, yep, the tab master. That's what we're going to start calling this guy. Well, Bo, would you take a moment to yep. pray for our time today? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Father, we give you glory today. We thank you so much for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, we thank you for the gift of love. We pray that uh, your love would uh, shine through us uh, through the broadcast uh, today. And we're asking uh, uh, just a blessing for those that are listening. Do you be with them through whatever's going on in their life, the different struggles that they're facing, the trials, uh, sometimes feeling very hard-pressed. Um, and we pray, Father, that you would continue to guide them and be with them, strengthen them. And uh, We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for who you are in our lives. And we just give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For those of you who are listening in our website, I'm not seeing anything come through, so I do apologize if the live stream at calvaryfellowship.com is not coming through. <clears throat> I've refreshed the page a couple times, and I'm just not seeing a live stream. So if you are watching there, and it is coming through, um, if you wouldn't mind uh, messaging us on YouTube or Facebook, letting us know, that would be awesome. Not quite sure what's going on there. Sometimes... Uh, technology <clears throat> fails us and it's uh, uh, a bummer Questions. well we'll start with uh, our first question left over from yesterday that we didn't get to Talon wanted to know how to be more effective at prayer the idea being as was expressed by Talon in, in the question in the comments of our YouTube channel uh, someone who uh, is not a very talkative struggles to communicate perhaps how do you have a good prayer life uh, is it okay to have prayers that are short is there such a thing as a prayer that's too short is you know and, and things like that so that's a good question um how do you have a meaningful prayer life uh is there rules to how long you pray and <laughs> or how short or how often or is it more about the heart john matthew 6 and verse 5 when you pray you shall not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men so there's an intent of the heart to be seen in public assuredly i say to you they have their reward 
But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions like the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, don't be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So the purpose of prayer isn't for the sake of information, it's for the sake of communication. Then Jesus goes on to say, in this manner, notice not in this rote, not in this ritual, not in this vain repetition, but in this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, so you're acknowledging who you're talking to and where he is, hallowed be your name. There's some respect there, an acknowledgement for who you're talking to. Another example of this would be, for instance, in the uh, book of Acts when the apostles were being persecuted, and they started the prayer with saying, Lord, creator of heaven and earth, reminding themselves they were talking to someone bigger than their circumstances. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're acknowledging and deferring to the one who's in charge here. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, acknowledging both physical and spiritual needs, and going to him for both. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Or that is true. So acknowledging just as much a follow-through on those things. We have an opportunity to either sin today or draw closer to you today. Give us the power to do the former. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the length of this prayer, commentaries aside, less than a minute. And that is about as perfect a prayer as you can get because it's the one that Jesus told us in this manner, therefore pray. So length doesn't matter, sincerity of the heart does. The content of your prayer, mentioning all the right names or quoting all the theologians, couldn't matter less. Mentioning all of your problems, before Jesus said a word about how to pray, he clarified God knows what you need when you're talking to him. What matters is that you're talking at all. Um, One of the most sincere and effective prayers in the Bible is in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, where we're not even told what he prayed, just the fact that he said, Lord, help me, and then went on to ask the king for help regarding the rebuilding of Jerusalem and fulfilled prophecy as a result. When it comes to prayer, Talon, the uh, old saying, 90% of success is just in showing up. Well, 90% of prayer is just a willingness to acknowledge that God is there because that's what he wants you to take away from it. Mm, good stuff. Yeah, I, I love the question, Talon. I, I think it's awesome. Um, and uh, I, I find it fascinating to go throughout the Bible and find the different prayers that are within the texts. Like, for instance, I really enjoy uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, and this is the prayer of King Solomon. Um, You might want to read it. It it actually is a pretty long prayer, uh, especially compared to our Messiah uh, that um, Sean just got done reading. Um, But I think you'll see all the elements that are in uh, what Sean just quoted from Jesus's lips um, in Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. Another area is you can read Daniel um, chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9. These are another couple areas of your Bible, Daniel 9, Ezra 9, 1 Kings 8, that have these prayers in them. And and you read these prayers and you kind of go, whoa, I kind of see a little bit of how the vibe is, like how people are, 
are praying because I'm tailing. I'm, I'm kind of like you in a way where, you know, when I came to Christ, I, I had no clue. Like, you know, my first prayer was on a beach in Silver Strand, and it was a very weird prayer. I must say it was it was a very meaningful prayer. Don't get me wrong. I, I really meant what I said and I needed God's help. But it was just weird. It, the, the context was weird, meaning I was praying for something that most people probably don't pray for. But, um, but I needed a, a kind of a special uh, work of God uh, mm. that night. And, um, you know, so, um, you know, to have meaningful prayer, it just like having mean, meaningful conversation, mm. it, it takes something. And it takes this. It takes investment. Um, it takes love. Uh, uh, and if we could say like a loving investment. Um, I don't know if I would really have meaningful dialogue with my parents uh, when they were alive or my children or my wife if it wasn't with loving investment. And so it's not just praying things that are the right things to pray, if that makes sense. It's not just saying, hey, God, I want you to be glorified, and we say it like out of duty. Does that make sense? Even though that's true, you know, meaning it's a good, that's a good biblical idea to glorify God, there's something much more that we are to bring. And we see this in the Old Testament where the Bible says, bring your heart before the Lord, not, you know, your, just your garments, not just your, your, your clothes and your, your sacrifice, but bring your heart before the Lord. And meaning God wants meaningful, loving relationship. Um, and if there's anything where the people of Israel got really wrong was when they went to offer prayers and petitions and sacrifices before the Lord, they didn't bring it with meaning behind it. They didn't bring it with a loving heart. They did things out of duty and obligation. And God saw that as very wrong. And he, so much so where he says, I'm not going to listen to your prayers mm. anymore. Mm. You know, so it's not, it's not so much that you're saying the right thing, but you, God wants our hearts, you know, when we approach him. And that's why I'm saying investment, loving investment. Um, so that's, you know, how would you have loving investment in anybody's life? You would pay attention. You would spend time. And so, Taylin, uh, right? Mm -hmm. Just take some time. Take, like, a moment and just quiet your heart before God and really invest time in prayer just dedicated prayer to talking to God, you know, focusing on his love for you and your love for him. Um, you know, that's what God is wanting. He's want, he wants us. He wants our hearts, you know. So uh, it's, a, it's a great topic because it's not just about saying the right thing, you know. So many people recite the Lord's Prayer, what Sean said, you know, our Father in who art in repetition. heaven. Yeah, in vain repetition, right? They don't bring their hearts to it. And that's not what God's wanting. 
you know, uh, what is it? Render your heart, not your garment, you know, mm-hmm. under the Lord. Um, you know, so God wants our hearts. Um, and, uh, and, uh, so that's, that's what he's, that's what he's asking. And I know for me, what that means is I have to quiet around me, be still, know that he is God and just take a break from everything. And just like I would, if I was talking to my mom, I wouldn't like, you know, if I'm distracted, that's not really loving communication, you know? So I got to kind of quiet everything around me. Mm. <clears throat> that's my biggest challenge is that I get so distracted with the worries of this world that it'd be like sitting down on a date with my wife and then just kind of staring <laughs> off or paying bills or, you know, or being in it or entertaining myself, texting other people. Yeah. Like, have you ever been it's to a restaurant? Really it's weird when you go to a restaurant and you see a couple and, and, and usually I see it in older couples where they sit down and, you know, it's like husband and wife or something, but they don't talk. Like you could tell they're not talking at all throughout the whole time. You know, they're just kind of spacing out and looking around and, and it's kind of weird. I always think like, man, that's weird. You know, like, you know, like you're with each other, you know, it's like get to know each other even more you know, have those interesting conversations mm-hmm. that are conversations that need to happen. Hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot of times we just s- sit before the Lord and we're just kind of staring <laughs> into space. <laughs> you know? That's a whole, that would be a great topic for a whole another session would be to talk about how you can grow your communication as a married couple after years of marriage when you feel like there's nothing else to know about that person and how do you have interesting conversation with someone yeah that you know really well or because there's been times where i've caught ourselves sitting at a restaurant and then all of a sudden radio silence we're we're, we're just both looking at our phones (laughs) doing our own thing yeah very rarely but it does yeah no it does and thing is is you know it, it takes loving engagement with with three kiddos uh whatever time we have alone we are always talking because it's the only time we have the chance to talk yeah. <laughs> so it's not yeah. an issue yet but i imagine for uh, empty nesters or yep. newlyweds who are don't have kids yet or just parents who don't have kids i mean married yeah. couple couples who don't have kids uh they might find themselves yep. you know lost in it but good uh, question though yeah thank you very much for that taylin and i i hope you're watching when we uh when we got to it today uh ted wants to know he emailed us what was the comparison James was making between the rich and poor, and how does it relate to the trials talked about in the previous verses? Yeah, uh, the passage in James is kind of sandwiched between dealing with trials, and people would think, oh, well, James is just kind of going from topic to topic, and that's easy to, I guess, fall into as a mindset if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, because if you remember the Proverbs of Solomon cover a wide range of topics, but if you're paying attention to the themes, you note that there's a reason they put them in this order. Uh, James chapter 1, you I'm sure all know about verses 2 through 8, but I'll read them anyway. It says, My brethren, count it joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. 
For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So starting off the book, but especially the conversation and what's going to lead into your question, he's set up the topic around what? Around trials, a proper perspective of God, and receiving from God. So note that hint as what you will receive and what's keeping you from receiving. Now, with God still as the object, it says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. Now pay attention to that language because it drives home the point. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat, don't we know it, than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. So second topic is around what you were talking about, the rich man losing his riches, like the worldly beauty losing itself the moment the sun comes up. Then it goes on to say, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who loved him. Now, that's interesting because it seems like we've jumped all the way back into verse 4, that we're receiving patience from the Lord. There's a payoff to this that we ought to pursue. So what then does verses 9 through 11 have to do with this section of scripture? Well, a lot, just like in Hebrew poetry in the Proverbs, when he's flowing from thought to thought, the theme remains consistent. The starting of the topic was trials and their payoff. He gives this illustration, then goes back into trials and their payoff. Now, normally, if I make two points, whatever I said in between had something to do with both of them. So when an, a wealthy person, in this case, endures trials, what is it going to produce? Well, the same thing the lowly brother is being given in exaltation, an opportunity to draw closer to God. The more this world passes away, the more we have an opportunity to realize what matters most. The more we realize this world doesn't have a lot to offer, the lowly position, so you have the opportunity to depend on the one who actually has something to offer, that is God. So in that point, and again, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, the best thing to do if you find something obscure is to look for other references that make kind of the same points or use the same language, and maybe they might uh, be more straight to the point than James would be. And in this case, we can go straight to his older brother in Mark chapter 4 and verse 19, where he again he uses the same language. I'll do in verse 18, where he's explaining a parable. He says, Now these are the ones sown among thorns, and they are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So note in the parable of the sower, what did he explain chokes out the work of God, mm. the seed in someone's life. It is riches. We can also go to Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus talks about this and using, again, the illustration that James uses in lilies and the grass withering away, but God providing for all of them. Solomon and all his beauty was not adorned with it. You can say the Sermon on the Mount was a positive example of James's negative Nancy approach, but both were making the same point. Both were the same wisdom. What? Drawing closer to God should be your priority. If you're humiliated from an exalted position, draw close to God from it. If you're in a lowly position and you're glorified as a result, draw closer to God as a result of that. Make sure your glory is in God because both, in a sense, are a trial. Both, in a sense, are a temptation. And as James started the pro uh, chapter with, both produce patience if it's sought through to the end. 
The glory can draw you to God, but it can also be a distraction. The humiliation can draw you closer to God, or it can just be a bummer. The choice is yours, but that's the point that James is sandwiching between the two. Money and your handling of it can both be an excellent trial, but in this case, we still have a decision. That's, I think, the most I can do. Hopefully the Spirit will do something with that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. That's good. I loved my little NIV uh, text note. I thought they did a good job on this. It says, um, it says, James' discussion of wisdom and of the poor man and the rich man appear between the two sections on trials, which Sean already stated. Uh, 5 through 11 may also have to do with trials. The Christian who suffers the trial of poverty is to take pride in his high position as a believer. And the wealthy Christian is to take pride in trials that bring him low, perhaps including the loss of his wealth. And so I think that goes right along with what, what Sean's saying um, about everything's really pointing back to, um, you know, trusting in God. Um, no matter what situation you find yourself in in life. Um, uh, yeah, there's trials for the rich, there's trials for the poor, um, and James seems to be expressing that, and obviously everything in between. And so sometimes, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, in, in the world, you tend to think that the rich don't have many trials, like they're getting away with everything or something like that. Or, or sometimes you'll think the poor, um, you know, like they're, they have all the trials or something like that. But James seems to make it very clear that both rich and poor are going to have their share of trials. But the Christian, w whether you find yourself rich or poor, need to have right perspective within the mm -hmm. trial. Um, and there, there it is. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. No problem. Thanks for the question. Yeah, it was a uh, great question. <clears throat> for those of you uh, who typically go to our website to watch the live stream, I've been trying to troubleshoot, um, but uh, haven't been able to get access to the actual platform. So I apologize if you wanted to chime in a question there. If you catch us on Facebook or YouTube, thank you for hopping over. And uh, please leave your question there, and we'll try to get to that. Um, next question also from, uh, well, let's see here. Checking out our YouTube feed. I see uh, some comments. Uh, Got a chat question of will we see Adam and Eve in the resurrection? So are Adam and Eve in heaven, and will they be back? Uh, it's, a, it's a fair question. Obviously, we're not uh, told about a conversion experience, but we can ask what makes someone saved. We can look about the little things that were told about Adam and Eve's 900 years on this earth, and then, uh, well, I guess extrapolate what we can. As far as passages, and this is just a side clarification, that say, well, in the book of Romans, it says, you know, in chapter uh, 4 or 5, I think it is, that, uh, you know, through one man, sin entered all man, because yeah. man sinned. Well, that's no more a disqualification of salvation than you and I are sinning, so let's just put that out there. And can we just back up one second? Who asked the question, and what was the question? The question is, will we see Adam and Eve in the resurrection? Their username, though, I will not attempt to Okay. <laughs> will we see Adam and Eve in the resurrection? So, Got it. Yeah, starting with what we know about Adam and Eve, we can go to the passage where they fell. This is the last time we have them being addressed directly and just talked about their offspring from there. 
But what's interesting about chapter 4 is it notes, uh, Adam knew Eva's wife. She conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, if your translation's a good one, it's going to note in italics when they've inserted words for the sake of grammar and structure. But if you go, say, for instance, on Bible Hub and look at the Hebrew section, the little tab at the top, you can read it as it was written and as it would be plainly pronounced in the original languages. And there's something really interesting here. It says, literally, in the Hebrew, I have acquired a man, note Cain, the old man, the Lord. And Lord there is the sacred name of God, what mm. Israel would have been known, would have known God as, addressing him personally. Now, what would give Eve the impression that her offspring would, A, be addressed like that? She obviously found out real quick that this wasn't the Lord, but a getting, being acquired a man, why would she have an expectation that this would be the Lord? Why would she address him like that? Well, the reason is because the answer is yes. I think that Eve, like everyone else in history who has a saving relationship with God, had with her an expectation of God's redemptive work. Now, where did she get that idea? We'll go back to chapter 3, it's two verses up, <laughs> and it notes when they're being cursed, to the woman he said in verse 16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now note the curse will be in childbearing. But what is the reason why that's such a curse? Well, in that separation, what builds up to this is, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, the seed for the woman is singular, and it doesn't mention the man. That's also important. Yeah. They, they call this the proto-gospel in fancy terms. You shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. When it comes to the picture that's being presented here in the curse, Eve's obviously going to be bringing forth children and in pain, but as a result of that child, she has an expectation of what? This seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head, that would take away the serpent, the Nahash literally, the shining ones, power over us forever. Now what's interesting about that is we see how that impacted her life, her mindset, her perspective personally, and how much of a bummer it was to her when she started producing more children than just Cain. She realized we're going to have a longer time separated from God than we thought. Yeah, because really from her perspective, like, you know, she probably thought like, hey, I got the promise that there's going to be a, a Messiah, a deliverer that's going to come through me. And she probably was pretty excited <laughs> to know that she had a child. And so, um, you know, for her, I mean, for all, you know, reasons, you know, she thought that this was it. This was the child. And uh, yeah, what a rude awakening mm. to know that, oh my gosh, this isn't the child. Yeah, that's why um, Abel's name was literally nothingness, nothingness vanity. Yeah, vanity. So yeah. going back to the first point, what saves any of us? Well, Old or New Testament, looking at Jesus, trusting mm -hmm. that he will be our redemption on that day. Mm. Now, Eve, the moment that she gave birth for the first time, probably traumatized, but nonetheless, I, I pity Adam's perspective on that too. He looked at this and realized, this is the Lord. This is Cain. This is, behold a man, the Lord. That's how they were identifying this child. They had that expectation for their Savior. 
Now, when Cain turned out not to be their savior, they were disappointed, but it didn't mean that they went into apostasy. They continued to obey the Lord's command to be fruitful and multiply. But that's the interesting thing. What saves any of us? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12 to 1 says. So if that then is the crux of the matter, pun intended, what do Adam and Eve have in common with any of us? Well, A, they're human, but B, they had hope that they would have a Redeemer. They didn't know him as Jesus, but everyone in the Old Testament was saved just like they are in the New. They look forward just like we look back and recognize what Jesus did or would do is sufficient. And you can see this with David and his expectation of the Messiah in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, I believe it is. You could note this for Abraham and him believing God and it being accounted to him as righteousness. And all of these things continue on throughout Scripture. So will we see Adam and Eve in the resurrection because of their hope and expectation expressed in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1? I believe so. If I'm wrong, well, then that was an issue between their hearts and the Lord's. But note what saves you. I think that's an important reminder. Yeah, and I, I would kind of piggyback on that with Romans chapter uh, 5, uh, talking about the uh, one man's trespass and one man's act funny. of righteousness. Yeah, where it says in verse 18, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all humans, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all humans. For just as through the disobedience of the one human uh, that many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man that many will be made righteous. You know, it, when I read something like that, it makes me ask the question, was Adam and Eve human? And the answer is, well, yeah, they were human. And so they fit into that category of needing salvation. And, uh, and that is through the redemption of the child. And this is the theme throughout all the scripture, is that when that promise happened to Eve, ever since that promise dropped, you know, the mic dropped on that promise, it, the whole... Bible is just waiting and waiting and waiting, and it's all, it's all taking us into who this child's going to be. It's going to come from Abraham. It's going to come from Isaac. It's going to come from Jacob. It's mm -hmm. going to come from one of the 12 tribes. We get it down, down to Judah, and then it just starts narrowing down. And so there's this anticipation um, throughout the whole scriptures of who this child's going to be. So it's interesting that on page two of the Bible, you have really the crux mm -hmm. of the matter. <clears throat> that crimson th thread runs through the entire Bible that's from beginning to end. That's right. And so Adam and Eve were human, and so they, they uh, you know, their condemnation, they were condemned uh, and so to die, and so they needed life. And so they fall into the category of needing redemption, and so mm -hmm. they will obviously be resurrected. Mm. And, um, yeah, we don't know for certain which resurrection. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, or do we have good reason to think that I, they I mean, were I think in First Thessalonians, uh, you know, chapter 4 and uh, moving into chapter 5, you get an understanding that, you know, uh, when Jesus Christ returns, you know, the dead in Christ will be raised. And then uh, we then we say that we who and who are, who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the mm -hmm. clouds. 
And then uh, you get, uh, so we know that there's a resurrection there. Mm -hmm. And then we know that there's a resurrection also in the book of Revelation. Right. Where we see there's another uh, resurrection of the righteous dead as well. Yeah, and that's a good segue to note for time for more questions to come in. There's a lot of controversy about that Revelation 20 passage as far as the first resurrection and how that kind of Mm -hmm. fudges the numbers as far as the structure of the end times. When people say in Revelation chapter 20 uh, and verse 5 that this is the first resurrection, if you hold the view that we do, how then does that jibe with our handling of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, and others, that that resurrection will be at the sound of the last trumpet if we take this all sequentially. And then there's other people who say, okay, how would you handle that then either as a culmination, as a fulfillment, as a type of resurrection, the last resurrection, or second to last if you count the great white throne judgment, but the last uh, resurrection towards righteousness rather than condemnation. How do we handle this in an end times perspective when it says this is the first resurrection, since Jesus obviously resurrected however many years from that point in history to go. And and he's called the first fruits. Yeah, not the first resurrection or first person to be resurrected. Mm -hmm. Jesus, as you said, was called the first fruits of our common salvation. Mm -hmm. So what is the most appropriate way to handle this? Yeah, and I would, I would look at it like the first is meaning a, a type, the type of resurrection. The resurrection of the righteous. those in Christ. The That's righteous. right. Uh, because everyone will be resurrected, some yeah. unto the right. judgment seat of but, Christ but, but, and others but, unto the great white throne judgment. And that's a quote from Daniel 12, that in the last days, you know, yeah, there'll kingdoms be, a, be established, there'll be a resurrection of the righteous and mm-hmm. a resurrection unto condemnation. So would that be an appropriate option? Are these two separate events would be, that's what I was curious and why I said which yeah, resurrection. Yeah, but what seems to be evident is that what's part of the first resurrection is a group of people, and they're, they're raised at different times. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. Jesus raises from the dead, and there's people that raise from the dead. Mm-hmm. And, in, and it's very much like a, it's, it's a very, I think it's a very Old Testament fulfillment of like a, a, a sheave offering, like a, an offering, um, first fruits offering. Mm. Jesus is the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. And then what happens after his resurrection? There's this little resurrection that takes place. <laughs> we don't know who they are exactly, but they go in and they present themselves as first fruits hmm. to actually the whole in Jerusalem, and that's in Matthew twenty-eight. And I, right? I've heard Matthew some twenty-seven. Some teachers yeah. suggest the idea that so these were Old Testament saints waiting in Abraham's bosom. But yeah, that's a that's Sheol. a that's you're getting us down. Jesus another. goes down to uh, you know, <laughs> lead the captives free. Yeah, yeah. You're getting, yeah, and I would just try to simplify and say, okay, <laughs> the first resurrection is everything from Jesus's resurrection all the way through the the church age into the the rapture of the church and and what we read in revelation of the first resurrection yeah the tribulation um, martyrs those with palm branches in their yep. hands revelation they 7. all are a part of the work of messiah mm-hmm. they all inherit the so the, it's the, it's the kind of resurrection like you the said, kind that yeah the kind of re- that's a good started word. with jesus it ends with the church right but there is a a time lapse uh that make up this mm. group of people 
and then there is another resurrection that takes place at the very end but that is a resurrection obviously that you don't want to be a part of and that's that's where people debate whether the rapture is pre post or or mid or whatever because the rapture is the moment that the dead in christ also rise Mm -hmm. right and then when the tribulation is over you have the battle of armageddon you have judgment it's finished now god uh, and then you have a thousand year reign so is this second resurrection take place after the reign of christ when satan is re-released and he deceives the nations mm-hmm. and then uh, a new heaven a new earth is that when the second resurrection takes place where all those who 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 died not in christ the lost will be brought before god in the great white throne judgment well, and that's the challenge because yes. in these three views, yeah, in these three <laughs> views, you've got the perspective that says, okay, the resurrection is past; that this final resurrection has no place in the future. The preterist view that these things have been fulfilled; that those who die in Christ are given eternal life; that they're in heaven now; that there's no end times fulfillment of this historically. We would disagree with that because while we acknowledge that Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection like the Feast of First Fruits, this would still be an ongoing harvest. That's right. That's the point. The yeah. second promise Promise of more resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> and the perspective of the promise is being fulfilled, not just literally, which a preterist would acknowledge, and we'd agree with to a point. There's also the idealist, the symbolic perspective of, well, now that Jesus has demonstrated victory over death, there's not really a resurrection per se. There's this eternal state where we'll be ethereal in the heavens, but this ongoing struggle of good and evil, no one could know anything. What's going on beyond this earth? Just live your life now. Focus on the end times when that's someone else's problem. All we know is what God has for us now. And we would say that's very lazy as far as biblical writing because it not only dismisses but in advance disallows the possibility of God doing anything when he spelled it out the same way that he said he would do things in the Old Testament. Because yeah. there was a literal Messiah in the Old and uses the same language for a literal resurrection in the future, we can take that as well. Right, and, and that's the issue, is there's a literal... It, did Jesus literally rise from the dead? Yes or no? And if, you, and if he didn't, you know, our faith is in vain. <laughs> right, and if Jesus literally rises from the dead, then we have to take... Um, the idea that in Matthew 27 when it says Jesus died and then it says he rose after his resurrection there was the graves were open and people went into the the holy city of Jerusalem and showed themselves that you know that sounds pretty literal that like that really happened and and so if things if the resurrection's to be literal then we have to look at first Thessalonians chapter 4 when it's talking about the rapture of the church, Jesus, us being caught up together with him in the air, and those that are dead in Christ will also be raised at that time, that must be a literal resurrection as well. So you see there's another resurrection going on, but it's all part of the work of Messiah. It's all under the umbrella of the first to rise from the dead, the promise, the fulfillment of the promise that has been made, that Jesus has conquered sin and death in the grave. Mm -hmm. And so then in the book of Revelation, um, you get this righteous uh, resurrection that takes place. And again, this is, uh, is is it a literal? Yeah, Jesus' resurrection is literal. The rapture seems to be pretty literal. I mean, everything is talked as it's literal. So it's, um, you know, it, 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 it would be really weird to, you know, kind of mystify 
all these passages uh, away. Which is then what brings us to the futurist position, our position, and essentially the homework, I think, that's the best way to put it, that's required in understanding the structure here. If you take the approach that, okay, Revelation's sequential, that there is a progression of plagues, there's a progression of works of God during the times of these plagues, and that the thousand-year reign of Christ follows the same structure as the first three-thirds of the tribulation, then we can have at least an outline of this that's what? Those who, in verse 6, are blessed and holy, part of the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. If that's a literal statement to those who have the first resurrection, well, that applies to everyone who's in Christ. And I think an idealist, a preterist, and our fellow futurists would all say, yeah, that, that checks out. Someone who is in a right relationship with God will stay that way as he's ruling and reigning, Isaiah 11 style. But then we ask the question, so where does the rapture fit into this? And it's another question as far as the timing, but the concept is, in fact, appropriate. Because if we say the rapture is before the tribulation, or during the tribulation in some way, not after the tribulation, like this passage would assumingly join together. There's a resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what it's speaking of, the glorified body. So if we're caught up, literally, the words in 1 Thessalonians 4, then we have to ask ourselves, is that at the after the tribulation? Is that the end of the tribulation? Is Jesus ushering in his kingdom? There's kind of an overlap between 20 and 19. Or is there a difference between someone being caught up, caught out of the storm, and someone who's, in this way, given a fulfillment Mm -hmm. of a promise? And the way that a futurist, uh, (laughs) premillennial Christian would handle this passage, I think that's the right word for it. Premillennial. Yeah, we believe we're before the millennium. And that Revelation 19 and 20 are chronological, not resummarizations, which would be the uh, either the post-millennial or amillennial view, which are real similar with a very small caveat of difference. And very popular on the internet, but we'll still uh, <laughs> make sure our positions are clear. Mm-hmm. Now, we'd say, well, being caught out is no more a completion of the resurrection than it would be if we say Jesus was resurrected at the start of this whole mess, or I guess this cleanup. If Jesus could rise from the dead and that not culminate, complete, finish, stamp down, no more resurrections from here on out, this is the first resurrection, (laughs) then Revelation 20 would have been in Revelation 4. Right. But if on the other hand we're Mm -hmm. to say, and be consistent with our worldview, this feast of first fruits, Christ is our first fruits, is an ongoing process, yeah, the rapture of the church would be a definite mass resurrection, but it would no more be a disallowing of future resurrections than we would say with Jesus. That's where you have to watch your presuppositions. Mm-hmm. Well, my idealist perspective's right, so you explain to me why I'm wrong. Yeah. And, and yeah. for those of you who are maybe not heard these terms before, uh, premillennial simply means that the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ in Revelation is a thousand-year reign that will literally take place, and in the future that means that the church age is before, pre, the millennium. And then the amillennial and the postmillennial say, well, no, that millennium reign, that millennial reign in Revelation is figurative, it's symbolic. So the post-millennials will say, we are, Christ is reigning now. This is the millennial reign. This is the, the time where Jesus is reigning on the throne. The church is going to systematically and through slow process, we don't know how long it'll take, 
but convert the majority of the world. The world will get better and better, morally better, and eventually the majority of humans on Earth will come to faith. The amillennial view, the only real difference between them and the postmillennial view is again, the millennial reign is a figurative, symbolic idea. Jesus is reigning on the throne. However, they do believe that there is an end and that the world is not going to get better. That's the really the biggest difference between the two views. One thinks we're going to convert the world and the other says no. <laughs> it's going to get worse and then Jesus will simply return. Uh, and that's it. There is no, uh, the book of Revelation on both views uh, and there's a lot of gradation are what Sean referred to as a preterist view, meaning that the, the bulk of prophecy in the Bible has already been fulfilled in the first century and in the church age. Uh, God does not have a resumption of plan for Israel once the church age is complete, that God is done with Israel, the church has replaced Israel, and so on and so forth. And note, you hold those views, we're still brothers. These yeah, are secondary yeah absolutely, issues. absolutely. I think, I think when you read the Bible, you see that there's always stages there's always like these stages, mm. right? Even in salvation, there's stages. Mm. And, um, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, there's differences yeah. in stages. We, we mm. are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. Yeah, <laughs> and so I think, you know, when you just, you, you see the flow like that, it makes more sense. Like, oh, the resurrection, yeah, everything that's part of the first resurrection, there's a couple stages of that first mm. resurrection, you know. Um, that make up, uh, what is it, like a play has a first stage, you know, a first act. act. Mm. You know, well, part of the first act is Jesus' resurrection, uh, the resurrection of those immediately after his resurrection. The and age of the church, the, age the, of the time church, of the rapture, the time of the, the, rapture, time of yeah. the tribulation. Yeah. Yeah. That, those that. post and uh, amillennial, A is in, in the Greek language, means negative, so it's like atheism, no, theos, God. So A, no millennium. They typically look at Jesus's resurrection as the first resurrection. Yeah, he was they, the first they'd one. say Revelation 20 took yeah. place in Matthew 28. Yeah, and then the second resurrection is the second coming, everybody else. Yeah. yeah. But we, we take a different view. We think, no, Jesus was the first of many brethren yeah. of a long church age that will culminate in the resurrection of those yep. who have died in Christ, who have, as Paul said to the Thessalonian church, fallen asleep. Yeah, just as he fulfilled the feast of Passover, he mm. fulfills the feast of first fruits, mm. and he fulfills the feast of the other ones too. What a yeah, so beautiful idea! Up, yeah. So wow, that's yeah, just bit, look that's up these maybe, terms, look yeah. up these things that we're describing, ask more questions about it. We could use the mental exercise, but don't think that if someone, even in a bizarre way, uh, holds a different view, of the end times. Let that divide fellowship. It yeah, could be don't a test it, for other yeah, things. Yeah, don't let it divide fellowship. That's what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, but if they, uh, you know, just throw out Scripture entirely and say, well, the Bible has no relevance for us today, that's different. But <laughs> make sure that that is where you uh, yeah, it's cool. It's, it's great stuff to look into, man. I mean, that's the beautiful yeah, thing in Scripture. I love Yari's question. Uh, Yari wants to know, um, I think it's kind of a continuation of a conversation, but I think this part of the part of the conversation on YouTube is good and uh, Yari talks about an uncle who's been debating <laughs> Yari and can't answer uh, him he's right when it comes to abortion and a nation can't a nation can't legislate morality so Roe v. Wade was okay because we aren't meant to be a theocracy um, so okay what is a law a law? A law. A law. A oh, law. a law. It's a legis legislated morality. <laughs> so according to Yari's uncle, a nation can't have laws because that would make it a theocracy. Yeah. 
Yeah, I find it interesting when people argue that you can't legislate morality, yet almost every, especially criminal law, is based on the idea of a thou shall not. Yeah. You know, everything that, the Ten Commandments is legislated morality, except for the uh, vertical law of our relationship to God, uh, but the horizontal aspects of the Ten Commandments are very much instituted. I mean, you can't uh, steal from people, you can't murder them. There's a lot of things you can't. Lying under oath is uh, a criminal offense. You can get in a lot of trouble for lying under oath. <laughs> At least you used to. Yeah, you might be able to lie to your parents, but uh, you know there will be consequences for that too if you get caught. So. Yeah, that you can legislate. We do legislate morality. Um, That's what there has laws to be, are. <laughs> yeah, we have to have a civil society. And abortion, as we've discussed over the last several days, last week especially, I love how Pastor Scott said that the fundamental uh, issue with the whole discussion is when do you decide that life begins? And then, uh, and, and also to that, is life valuable do you define life itself not just when does it start but people may even agree with us that yeah it starts at conception but i think life is not like intrinsically valuable they define its value pragmatically well are they able to live on their own take care of themselves what if they become a hitler all these excuses are really defining life pragmatically not essentially essentially meaning that the essence of being human is you value life doesn't matter who they are, if they're able to take care of themselves, if they don't uh, have all their functioning body parts working, like if you were born blind or yeah. unable to walk or whatever, you don't value, you don't, a person doesn't get their value from how they pragmatically function. Yeah. Which is hilarious because in this case, someone's trying to play mm -hmm. the role of God. I gave life, I decide who's worthy of it, I decide who can, uh, when to take it, and so forth. The problem with people who make these arguments isn't that they don't want a theocracy, they just don't want anything other than their theocracy where they get mm -hmm. to be God. Yeah, and, and Yari, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, I had this talk with my old man uh, for years and years and years. And this is how they're thinking. This is why it's going this way um, in your life, too, is when my dad would say you can't legislate morality, what he was meaning by saying that was that he was trying to make a point about church and state. That's really what it was. It was he was trying to say that because Christians are, uh, have a strong voice in this country, and they are against predominantly abortion. Uh, I would say a strong majority of the Christian people are, are strongly against uh, abortion. At least the legitimate ones. Yeah. Well, well, that is the that is the um, that is the way that my dad perceived the argument mm -hmm. is that. It is a Christian set of morality, and that should the government mm -hmm. have a Christian, um, should the Christian majority and what the Christian majority wants be the dominant, um, uh, if you will, um, rule in the country. Mm -hmm. And so your dad's probably like that too, where your dad might be more secular. Uh, not not a Christian per se, but just secular, and 
and many Christians too are influenced by our secular society. So it doesn't mean they're not Christians if they're for abortion. It doesn't mean that, you know. It means that they might be just mixed up, mm. you know. That's all. And you really know? what it amounts to is um, that there's a set of moral values that society has, and then there are a set of moral values that religious people have. That's right. And there are the fundamentals that we all agree on, like murdering and stealing and, and lying under oath and you know robbing, all those kind of things. But then where we diverge, where, where they call it you can't legislate morality, is when we say, well, I think um, adultery is wrong too. Mm-hmm. And let's say we can't legislate well, it's punishing. Because where we're, it's because where we're getting it from, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, when you have a secular influence of Marxism and other philosophical ideas that are underpinning mm. secular humanism, you know, the whole point is that you can't, uh, you can't have the deity involved in the argument. You know what I mean? And when you have the deity in the argument, then you're wrong. But, but you know. what I, the point I was making, though, is, is that, that that's how they identify a religious can't legislate morality yeah and but these laws we must have is really the ones that we disagree about mm-hmm. so you and I would agree that adultery is wrong and most people would agree adultery is wrong but it's not illegal you don't there's no punishment for committing adultery right and then when someone abandons a marriage they made a covenant they made a contract and they can just leave at any time when and we say well that's that's perfectly okay um, because you know that's a person's you know, they shouldn't be bound to an agreement Mm-hmm. But we know statistically that people who are abandoned through divorce, um, their lifespans are sh- seven years shorter than the other demographics of their similarities. Mm-hmm. So my, my life will be seven years shorter because of divorce. And so how do you uh, debate those things? And uh, we're seeing a debate with the, a lot of the gender but, stuff yeah, too but that, right now. But that's what I mean. The, the issue with my old man was just that of invoking the deity. Mm. You know, and, and that's what bothered him above everything. That makes a lot of sense, and uh, yeah. I really appreciate appreciate the questions. And uh, we'll be here again tomorrow, same place, same time. God bless you all. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.